0: Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be wrapping up 1 Corinthians 15 today. We're not far from wrapping up First Corinthians altogether. It's been quite a while. And we're getting closer and closer. Um, I'm going to read, starting in verse 50, through the end of the chapter. First Corinthians 15:50 50 to 58. And then we'll pray. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, "'Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. "'Behold, I tell you a mystery. "'We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. "'In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, "'at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound "'and the dead will be raised imperishable, "'and we will be changed. "'For this perishable must put on the imperishable, "'and this mortal must put on immortality.' But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is truly a a great passage. This is an encouraging passage. This is an uplifting passage that death is swallowed up in victory. What an amazing thought, what a beautiful truth that life's worst enemy, that man's age-old foe is rendered powerless. That ever since the the very beginning in the garden when man fell into sin, when Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit and they fell into sin and every subsequent generation to follow was lost in death. Death was a very true, re- very real reality for, for everybody. Death is something that we are so accustomed to, something that we are very familiar with. Uh, It is something that is natural and is expected. It is the the rightful outcome that we as fallen humans deserve for our sin against a holy and a perfect God. But it has become so common. It is so natural for us. That is the, the outcome of our life. It is what is expected for every person who lives, we come and we grow to expect death. And I find it kind of funny that we even pass over the passages in our Bible that speak to this death in such a common, such a expected way um, that document this regular occurrence that so-and-so begat such-and-such. They lived X number of years and then they died. Such-and-such then begat what's-his-face, and lived X number of years, and then they died. And then what's-his-face beget, what's-his-face junior, he did some other stuff, and he died, right? It's just common to us that this is the pattern of life. Somebody lives, and then they die. Somebody lives, and then they die. So common that we just skip over it in our Bible. And then we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul declares that death, this very common foe, this now natural, expected uh, aspect of life to, to end our life is now rendered powerless, that death is swallowed up in victory, and that this victory over death has indeed been accomplished. But this statement isn't just a blanket statement that we can all sing together with, with solidarity. We can't all sing that song. We're just saying that when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we sing and shout the victory. That's not a victory that we can sing and shout with everybody, but this is a, a proclamation that is a conditional proclamation. The condition of victory is that we be found in Christ. Not everybody can sing this song. This is, again, a great passage, but it's not a great passage for everybody. This is a great passage for those who are in Christ. Look with me again at verse 53. It says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying. So, this is something that is required to take place before we are able to sing and shout together the, the victory, before we're able to say that death is indeed swallowed up in victory. We must first have put on the imperishable, we must first have put on the immortal that not everybody can together sing this. We must first be made right before God to be prepared for eternity with him. And in, in thinking about this passage this past week, I was thinking about King David and his experience with death and thinking about the, the experience of death that he had when after his sin with Bathsheba and his killing of Uriah the Hittite, uh, God had taken his son from him. And while he was still waiting for the outcome of the, the death of his son, after hearing about the fact that his son would, in fact, be taken from him, he was weeping, he was crying, he was fasting, he was mourning in hopes that God would spare his child. But I want you to read with me in in 2 Samuel twelve twenty through 23, the response, what happened after he died, after his servants were nervous to tell him about the death of his son. And they say in 2nd Samuel 12:20, so David arose from the ground. He washed and anointed himself and he changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he came to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, "What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and you ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So David had an understanding that he would be reunited with this child, even though this child had died. And then, just skipping forward a a few chapters in our Bible, thinking to when David was having more than a spat with his son Absalom, they really were at war with one another. Absalom had taken over his kingdom. And David had men who were in pursuit of Absalom. You'll remember that Absalom was riding along on a horse, and he got caught in a tree by his hair, right? This is something that is totally cool to read about in the Bible. Something that um, is just... Wild, right? So he's stuck there, caught in this tree by his hair. And one of David's men comes up and uh, kills him with three spears. He, he pushes him through with, with three spears, and this guy dies. And they bring this news to David. And I want you guys to, to hear David's reaction um, to this death of Absalom, his son, who had become his enemy in Second Samuel 18.33. It says that the king, talking about David, was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Two deaths that David experienced. And he responded to them in quite different ways. One, he went and he worshiped and he ate. And then with Absalom, he was... He was—he couldn't even talk. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, Absalom, my son. He was beside himself in, in sadness and in mourning and in weeping. Uh, he didn't have the same hope of a reunion with Absalom that he had with his other son. We know that uh, this, this desire to overcome death, this isn't something that is unique to, to one or two people. This desire to overcome death uh, is really universal. Death does indeed hold a sting for many, and there will be a desire to overcome the the reality of death. But we have to first, again, put on immortality. We have to first put on the imperishable. That um, these bodies, which are marked out by sin, are unable to. Overcome death, despite any desire that we might have to overcome death. I've I drive up and down I-15 all week. That's all I do. i just drive back and forth. And recently, I've seen these signs that have been put up, presumably by UDOT, and they say in big letters, "Defy death," and then underneath, "Click it or ticket." Right? That we can defy death by putting on our, our seatbelts. It's a desire that we all have. Something that. Uh, we we long for something that the Corinthians longed for. They longed for this desire to to put off death, to defy death, if you will, to be immortal, to put on this imperishable. But they had a completely different understanding of what it meant to put on immortality. They had a, a misunderstanding of the reality of eternity. They had this understanding of the flesh of the body as being bad. That we could only be with God in some kind of immaterial, ethereal type way where we don't have a body. They thought that flesh is evil and the immaterial is good. And so throughout this whole chapter, Paul is really trying to relay to them the information that we can be with God, not just in spirit, but our bodies as well are going to be with God. Back in verse 50, he said that Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And at that point, these Corinthians would have likely been nodding their head saying, yes, our our flesh and our body, we can't be with God. But what Paul was saying was, we need to be made new, right? We need to be transformed. Um, Not that our body isn't going to be able to be with God. Not that the material needs to somehow become the immaterial, but that the perishable needs to become imperishable. The mortal needs to become immortal. That our present bodies, as they are right now, they are not fit for eternity. So the condition for victory in, in Christ is, one, not only that we, we be in Christ, but two, that our, we have a, a future victory, that our bodies will be made new, that we will have put on this imperishable, this um, immortal body. And we can only do that by the, the means of victory. Look with me at verses 56 and 57. Verse 56, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Once again, in the the mind of the Jews, the the law is something that God has kind of contained within. They thought that they could gain access to God through the law. Jesus said in John 5 that you look to the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, but really what they do is they point to me. And so the law makes us knowledgeable of, of God. God has given us the law so that we can find Christ, so that we can see who Christ is. God gives us the law to make us conscious of our sin. It highlights our sin. Paul wrote in Romans that... Um, Sin, it reigned all the way from Adam until Moses. Before we even had the law, sin was still around. But what the law did was it made sin utterly sinful. It made us recognize and realize how grotesque and how wicked our sin is, how we in our flesh have rebelled against God. And that highlights the fact that we are unworthy. The law is what brings about um, this understanding of our sin. So we break the law, which is sinful, right? We understand that because of the law. This sin leads to death, and that is what has a a sting in us. That is what has power in us because of the sin that is exposed by the law. But God, right? But God became a man. But God fulfilled the law. We're told that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, that he lived a life of absolute perfection, that he never once did anything that the law commanded him not to do, that every single thing that the law told him to do, he did, and he did perfectly, that he was the only one who ever loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, all of the time, for us an impossibility, but Christ did it, and he did it perfectly perfectly. And then he took at the end of his life and he laid down his life willingly for us on a tree. He took the death, the penalty that we deserve, that he became death for us, that he truly was dead, but he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose again. He conquered the grave. He displayed his power over death and over the grave, and he is the reason, the only reason that we can have any victory over death, over the grave, because of the victory of Christ, because of the means of the victory that comes through the cross of Christ where he satisfied the perfect wrath of God, the just wrath of God. And he did so as a satisfactory payment. Listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says that Christ's suffering is our only path to victory. The cross is his triumph over suffering. He takes upon himself the suffering of the whole world, and in doing so, he proves victorious over it. He bears the whole burden of man's separation from God. That's quite a, quite a statement right there. He bears the whole burden of man's separation from God. In the very act of drinking the cup, he causes it to pass over him. He sets out to overcome the suffering of the world, and he must drink it to the dregs. Suffering is overcome by Christ's suffering and becomes our way to communion with God. Suffering has to be endured in order that it may pass away. Either the world must bear the whole burden and collapse beneath it, or it must fall on Christ to be overcome in him. He, therefore, suffers vicariously for the world. His is the only suffering which has redemptive uh, efficacy. Christ's suffering is effective for us. Christ's suffering is able to redeem us from the suffering of death. Christ conquered death through his own death. And this is exactly why Paul is able to stand here and to proclaim that death is swallowed up by death. That Christ has gained this victory over death. If you look at these uh, words at the end of 54 and 55, likely in all caps in your Bible, that's not because Paul's yelling at us, but it's because he is quoting from the Old Testament. Now, Paul, as he's being directed along by the Holy Spirit, he chose to pick two quotes from the Old Testament to apply them to this victory over death. He chose a quote that's talking about uh, victory over death in the millennium and also a quote where he's talking about judgment and he takes and he applies these in a way so as to personify death as to talk about death in a way that death itself is a person that death is some sort of vicious animal with the ability to sting us uh, similar to the scorpions that we recently talked about from Revelation 9 that have the power to sting within their tails, right? And Paul is applying these kind of terms, this kind of language to death itself, uh, really kind of mocking death, um, saying that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where where's your victory at? Where is your sting, death? Similar to what junior high kids might do like at a, a sporting event, right? Just kind of trash talking one another. Oh yeah, let's see what you got. Show me. Death, where is your sing? Where is your victory? Death. Um, he p- talks about death in somewhat of an I- ironic way and somewhat of a, a poetic sort of reversal of outcome because death is what is waiting for us at the end of our life, right? Death is the end of life. And here, Paul says, no, death is going to be put to death. Death has no sting. Death has no victory. It's going to be taken away from death. Uh, Again, I was thinking this week about Esther and the ironic outcomes of the events of Esther and how uh, evil, wicked Haman had in his mind to take out Mordecai. He wanted to see Mordecai killed and all the Jews killed. And so he built this big, tall, 90-foot gallows so that he could do so and the king came to Haman and he said, Well, what should the king do for a man that he wants to to lift up and honor? And Haman, thinking the king was talking about him, he gave this uh, great explanation. Well, give him a parade and put your robe on him and, and lift him up. And the king said, Oh, great. Well, why don't you go out and do that for Mordecai? And then Haman ends up being hanged on the gallows that he built to, to hang Mordecai on. Just a complete reversal of outcome. And this is how Paul is talking about death, that death, which is supposed to have this sting, this power over us, has been rendered powerless by the effective work of Christ, by Christ's perfect work on the cross. He has completely defanged the power of death. He has taken that sting away from death, that we have life in an area where we should have death because of what Christ has done for us. In 1 John 3, 2, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is, that we will be like Christ, that we will indeed be resurrected, that again, this sting, this power of death will be taken out and rendered Powerless because of the means of the victory. Now, considering the the scope of Christ's victory, what does this mean that Christ is victorious over death? That He is um, the the one who has put death to death. Look with me at verse fifty-seven again. It says, "But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord." Uh, notice that this is spoken of in the, the present tense, that Christ gives us this victory now. This is something that we have now that we are victorious over death because of what Christ has done. That his work on the cross is indeed finished. When Paul was quoting from Isaiah 25, 8, he was quoting a verse that talked about death being put to death entirely it says that he will swallow up death for all time and that the Lord God will wipe away from all faces the tears and he will remove the reproach from his people from all the earth and the Lord has spoken. Again, when Christ was on the cross, he said, it is finished. He has completely put to death, death. The, degree, the, decree, the, yeah, the decree of our sin has been... Put to death on the cross, but the degree to which that death has been put to death is total and final, that it has all been accomplished in full on the cross. Uh, listen to this quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon and his personification of death. He says, at Golgotha, death stored one of his gloomiest trophies. Again, talking about death as if he is a person. He was the grim lord of that stronghold, but our great hero, the destroyer of death, slew the monster in his own castle and dragged the dragon captive from his own den. Death thought that it was a splendid triumph when he saw the master impaled and bleeding in the dominions of destruction. Little did he know that the grave was to be plundered and himself destroyed by that crucified son of man." The dragon of death was put to shame. He was defeated. Absolutely. He was destroyed by the crucified Son of Man. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he killed death uh, entirely. That all the power over death was rendered there at the cross. Now, we still die today, right? We still experience death today. We still experience defeat today. Today, And so, we need to understand the, not only the, the scope of the victory that Christ had over the grave, that it was indeed complete, that it was indeed finished, but the realization of this victory that Christ has over death. Death for the Christian has, in fact, lost its power at the cross. Just this past week, I was talking to a, an old saint who said um, that, they often pray that they just wouldn't wake up because they have a, a realistic understanding of the glory that is to come, of the great grandeur that we're going to have to be able to see our Lord, to be able to see Jesus face to face. There is no power that death can or should have over the Christian. We shouldn't have any fear of death because what awaits us on the other side is much greater than uh, what we are experiencing even now. But... Um, Though death lost its power at the cross, this will fully be realized at our future resurrection. Again, when the perishable is made imperishable, when the mortal is made immortal, this is when death will uh, fully be realized as being defeated. This is when we'll have a fully realized and fully understood victory over this power of death. I've got another quote here from Gordon Fee. And Gordon Fee says that victory in the present begins when one can, with Paul, sing the taunt of death even now. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? And to do so in the light of Christ's resurrection, knowing that death's doom is already and not yet. That because death could not hold its prey... Jesus our Savior. Neither will it be able to hold its further prey when the final eschatological trumpet is blown that summons the Christian dead unto the resurrection and immortality. What hope is this? We already have a hope because of what Christ has done for us at the cross. We don't need to fear death. Death has no power over us, and yet one day we will have even greater realization of the fact that our bodies are going to be Resurrected, Our bodies are going to be rendered new, right? That we are going to have new glorified bodies with Christ in heaven because of the very power that we see at the cross of Christ. Now, we, right now, as believers, we do long for holiness. Uh, we feel that, that tension of Romans 7 along with Paul, right? That The things that we don't want to do, we find ourselves doing. And the things that we want to do, we want to honor God, we want to bring glory to Him, and, and we don't always do that. We have in our lives pain and suffering and sorrow. We have uh, sadness and loneliness and anger and anxiety and fear and uncertainty and confusion. We have all kinds of uh, pain and hardship and, and toil and strife in our life that we struggle with. This is a reality that we know right now that will one day along with our old bodies, be, be put to death and be made new in Christ when we will absolutely have no, no tears, no fears, that we will be once again in the, the presence of Christ, that we will one day realize fully this victory that we have in Christ who has victory over the, the grave, victory over death. Now, all through... Chapter 15, Paul has been making a case. He's been laying out his case for a resurrection. Remember that he is speaking to a a group of Corinthian believers, some of whom are denying and have denied the truth, the reality of the resurrection. He has comprehensively made a case for this resurrection, identifying Christ and his resurrection as an integral part of the gospel. Remember back way in the beginning when he was talking about uh, that which is of first importance, that Christ has died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again according to the scriptures. And this death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has been witnessed to and attested to by by many, um, even up to 500 people at one point realize the fact that christ was raised and so if christ is raised and obviously we are going to be raised as well right there is a resurrection he has spoken both positively and negatively to this reality of the resurrection giving arguments for the resurrection appealing to old testament prophets uh, to natural revelation at one point to a, a random sect of people who believed in a resurrection for the dead, not commending that, but saying even these guys believe in a resurrection. He appealed to his suffering, along with the suffering of many other Christians, saying why would we even suffer if there is no resurrection for the dead? All throughout this whole chapter, he is making this appeal that there is a resurrection for the dead. And this whole chapter is leading up to this final verse that we see in verse 58, saying therefore, because of all this, because there is in fact a resurrection, because this is a reality this is your reality christian believer that we will be resurrected therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that your toil is not in vain and here we see the the expectation of victory that yes we are victorious in christ that yes death has indeed been put to death it has no sting it has no victory It has been, again, defanged. And Christ has proven himself victorious over death. However, we still have an expectation as believers that is set before us, an expectation that we are to live in a a certain way. Remember that Jesus uh, said that no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He said elsewhere that Uh, He who does not take up his cross and follow after Christ is not worthy of Christ. That as believers of Christ, we have um, our outcome settled. However, the battle is not over. We have um, direction here in verse 58 about how we are to uh, conduct ourselves in light of this victory. Now, verse 58 is not directed so much towards Christ. our our conduct or our behavior necessarily, but um, more so to how we are to handle the gospel and um, our work for the gospel. What it is we are to do for the gospel's sake now that we have been rendered victorious in Christ. We are to live, therefore, in light of this, my beloved brethren. We are to be steadfast and immovable. What What great terms to describe how we ought to live. Steadfast and immovable. That we are to stand firm. We are to stand our ground. We are not to move. Um, We are to to play our role, to play our part. When I was in junior high, talking about junior high uh, trash talk, right? Um, I played football and I was uh, on defense. So defense was to, their job was to stop the offense from, Advancing the ball, and I was a defensive end, so I was on the end of the line. My job was to contain to keep people from bouncing out to the outside, uh, to keep the running back from from getting out and so my job was to stand firm, I was to play home. My temptation was to sneak in, try to get to the quarterback and, and Be where the action is, but my job was to stay on the outside in case somebody else came out to me. I was to stand firm. That is what we as Christians, as believers, are to do. We are to stand firm, we are to be immovable. And this is mostly talking about our understanding of doctrine. All up until this point, Paul is giving us this doctrine that there is a resurrection, that we are to be raised, that we are going to be made. Imperishable, And so because of this, we are to stand firm. Uh, Paul talks elsewhere in Ephesians 4 about how we are not to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but we are to be grounded in Christ. We are to grow up into Him who is ahead, even Christ. We need to be uh, steadfast and immovable, not to be distracted from what is going on, from what our job is, not to be caught up and entangled with the the different events of life. Uh, that's exactly what he says in Second Timothy. You read with me in Second Timothy chapter 2, the last letter that, that Paul wrote. And he says to Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No, sol- no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And... We all as Christians, as followers of Christ, as children of God, we have been enlisted as soldiers and we need to stand firm. We need to be immovable. We need to remember what our job is in light of the truth of the resurrection. We are to be always abounding. Uh, Looking at this word, this is uh, a word that really just means to be super abounding, to surpass any kind of expectation. It's a kind of... uh, Un- unrelenting uh just exceeding that we see back in the old testament remember when moses was asking for a collection from the saints so that they could build up the tabernacle and he had to tell them he had to command them to stop bringing the the funds to the tabernacle because they were just overabounding they were super abounding they were exceeding in their gifts to god for the tabernacle and he had to command them okay well it's it's time to stop. How great would that be if we had to be commanded to to slow down a little bit in our service for God, in our evangelistic efforts, in our proclamation of the truth, that we were being uh, always abounding, super abounding to surpass any expectations that we had for us. This is what we were commanded to do as uh, servants of God, as soldiers of Christ, that we are to always abound in the work of the Lord. Um, I like a a quote from Warren Wiersbe talking about ministry. He says that ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. That is what we as believers are supposed to do. That is what ministry is, Uh, finding those who are in need, Allowing ourselves to be those loving channels so that we can glorify God. Just as we saw in this video a little bit earlier that to, to love on somebody has such a great effect. It has such a, um, a, a loving, um, it, it leaves a, a loving feeling in their heart to realize that somebody cares about me. Somebody loves me. And that is what we are called to do. We are called to be set apart, to superabound, to overabound in the work of the Lord. And we are told in this, this last section, this expectation of victory really leads to the application of victory. That we see that um, our work for the Lord is absolutely not in vain. That um, death is victory for the believer. All throughout this, we see that death is victory for the believer. But really what we're talking about when we say that we are to be Steadfast, immovable, always abounding, that's nothing but but dying to ourselves, right? If we were to be steadfast for the gospel, if we were to be immovable in uh, the truth of Scripture, if we were to be always abounding, we are called to, to die to ourselves. And that's what this is referring to. In Colossians three: one through four, um, Paul says, "Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, talking about our position, as believers, keep seeking the things above. Match your your practice to your position, uh, to who you are in Christ. Where Christ is, He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. That... Death is victory for the believer. We die to ourselves, and we are raised up with Christ. We are counted as victorious in Christ. This last part, this last little phrase here, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This should give us all hope, especially those who uh, have made an effort to apply the first part of verse 58, who have made an effort to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, Uh, especially in in Utah, it's not always easy to see the fruit of your work, to see the results of your efforts in being steadfast and movable, always abounding. You can do that day in, day out, and still not see much fruit that is evident to us, but we're told that it's not in vain, right? That the Word of God will never return to us void, that everything that we do for God from a pure heart is going to remain. Uh, It all means something for the Lord, that our efforts for Christ have a purpose. They have a meaning. Uh, I'm reminded, once again, Matthew 10 and what Jesus says. He says that those who, anybody who gives a cup of cold water to somebody in the name of Christ will be blessed. They will not lose their reward. For doing something as simple as giving somebody a, a cup of cold water, Jesus is going to remember that. Jesus is going to, uh, to bless that person for their work. And at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. Again, what a blessed thought that anything that we do, that we think, okay, well, what, what was that worth? That was a waste of time. Nobody saw that. That didn't produce any fruit. Nobody's coming to uh, a knowledge of God because of that effort that I had, because of that uh, small little thing that I did that was insignificant. Well, Jesus is going to remember, and he's coming, and he is bringing with him a reward for everything that was done for him in his name's sake. So, Taking this this whole passage as a whole and uh, just really wrapping it up, we see that we have victory because of what Christ has done, because of His perfect work on the cross, because of His finished work on the cross that He has taken it and um, nailed our sin to the cross. He has disarmed death entirely. Death has no power over the Christian. Jesus has defanged her so as to take away her sting entirely. And we have an understanding of that now. We should live in that understanding and we should live with the reality that uh, that is going to be realized later, that we are going to be made like he is and he is coming back for us with a reward so that we can say along with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That should be the mentality of the believer that death isn't, a loss for us, but Christ has taken and and flipped it on its head that death is gain. That is victory for us, that we are to be with our Lord, with our Savior, and to depart and be with Christ is far better than to remain here. And I just want to wrap up by reading Paul's words in Second Corinthians where he says, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let us as Christians have that mindset that the the trouble and the trials and the hardships that we're going through, they're just temporary light affliction. That should be our mindset because Christ is coming back and the things which are not seen, they are the things which are eternal. Things that we see now, they're just temporal, it's passing away. We're just, uh, life is a vapor, right? It's just a mist, as James would say. And if we really look at life in the grand scheme of things, we'll realize that uh, it's, It's all about Jesus and everything ultimately is going to be made right in him. Yesterday, we were walking through a a graveyard and we do this weird thing where we try to find the the oldest grave. Um, And I think it was, what was it, like 1866? 1866. All right, Kilo remembered. Um, And I don't remember that person's name. I didn't really spend time to look and see what their name was. Um, and there were many others that were 1867, 1868, 1870, um, people who had been dead for over a century, and I'm sure that they were worrying and um, being affected by many light trivial trials in their life, um, light momentary afflictions that were just controlling the their thoughts of their lives and the direction of their days. Those people, they they had Mondays just like we have Mondays, right? Uh, That guy who died in 1866 or that gal, I don't remember. Um, And a hundred years from now, those things aren't going to matter. They're just momentary light afflictions. But a hundred years from now, we are going to be with Christ if we are in Christ, if we have been um, made imperishable, if we have been made immortal. So let us have the mindset today that That's going to be a reality for us in 100 years that we're not going to be in this body. We're not going to be stuck in this world. Uh, Our Savior's coming back for us. He is away preparing a place for us, and we can take hope in that. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the beauty of the gospel, that you have taken our our sin and you have taken care of it, that you have... um, defeated death once and for all, that it is finished in you. And we thank you for the hope that we have to look forward to, to be with you for eternity, that our our momentary light afflictions are just that. They are momentary and they are light. We pray that you would give us that kind of mindset, that kind of perspective on life, that we would seek to live our lives for you, to honor you, to glorify you in, in every single thing that we do, whether we eat or drink, that we would always be seeking to bring glory and honor to you. God, take us and, and use us and uh, help us to, to please you, um, that we would be steadfast, movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We love you and praise you. Amen.